Welcome to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults will explore some of my favorite moments from North American and European trans history. I love history because it's my favorite kind of gossip. Scandalous, sensational, and most importantly of all, not about me. Directly, anyways. This week, we bring our miniseries on Warhol's trio of trans muses to a close with the life of trans actress, model, and icon Candy Darling. Although often relegated to the role of muse, both by her contemporaries and by those since, Candy pushed back against this categorization. She struggled to prove herself as a legitimate actress decades before Hollywood and Broadway were ready to accept a trans woman as anything more than a drag queen. Ahead of her time in so many ways, her throwback looks brought 1930s glamour back into the mainstream as an antithesis to the flower power look that dominated the tail end of the 60s, helping to shape what would become the quintessential 1970s fashion aesthetics. Candy Darling's short life made a tremendous impact on the world of fashion, theater, music, and film, and she remains a role model for all the glamour girls among us today. So, OFDV presents Tricky Mother Nature, the short and glorious life of Candy Darling. Candy came from out on the island In the back room she was everybody's darling But she never lost her head Even when she was given head She says, hey babe, take a walk on the wild side Said, hey babe, take a walk on the wild side And the colored girls go do 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 why have old Hollywood actresses held such a strong allure for trans women of the 20th century and beyond? Perhaps it's the combination of the arch femininity they ooze while often subtextually bucking against social trends during the repressive Hayes Code era. All of it an enticing metaphor for our lives as trans women. I count myself among those under its technicolor spell, but none have been so completely devoted to its enchantments as Candy Darling. Born on November 24th, 1944, or 1946, depending upon whom you ask, in Forest Hills, Queens, Candy Darling, knee slattery, grew up dazzled by cinema. The blonde film goddesses of the studio system filled Candy's dreams. Her school books from this time have doodles of those beauties and of Candy's envisioning herself as such a beauty in the margins. Her mother was a bookkeeper at Manhattan's Jockey Club, who would live on to eventually be 103 years old, and her father was a violent alcoholic. They split early, and Candy and her mother moved to Massapequa Park, Long Island. An effeminate outcast, Candy spent her days watching movies and television shows, longing to emulate her favorite actress, Kim Novak. 
When she got older, Candy began dressing as a woman, trying to capture the elusive, soft focus glamour of those actresses. She claims that she, quote, learned the mysteries of sex from a salesman in a local children's shoe store. Candy was forced to come out very young when a nosy neighbor spotted Candy going into a local gay bar called the Hayloft, dressed as a woman. When her mother confronted her later that evening, Candy told her to stay where she was and left the room. She returned dressed completely as a woman. Candy's mother would later say, I knew then that I couldn't stop her. Candy was just too beautiful and talented. Despite her mother's conflicted acceptance, this was still the early 1960s. Small town Long Island was no place for a young trans teen, so Candy began taking the train into Manhattan where she enmeshed herself within the Greenwich Village scene. At some point around 1964, Candy found a sympathetic doctor on Fifth Avenue to begin prescribing her hormones. Craig Heiberger puts this as happening in the spring of 1966, around the time she would meet her lifelong friends, Holly Woodlawn and Jackie Curtis, whom we've covered in the previous two episodes. This was also when she began experimenting with new names for herself, first adopting the name Hope before eventually landing on the name Candy. There are several stories behind how she got her names. Warholstars.org summarizes these conflicting stories thus. Jackie Curtis had told Andy that Candy had got the name Hope from a girl named Hope Stansbury, who Candy lived with for a few months in an apartment behind the Cafe Sino so that Candy could, quote, study her. According to Holly Woodlawn in The Hollywoodlawn Story, A Low Life in High Heels, Candy was first Hope Doll, then Candy Doll, and then Candy Kane. In her autobiography, Holly Woodlawn recalled that Candy had adopted the last name of Darling because a transvestite friend of hers named Taffy Tits Sarcastic, quote, used to drag Candy all over the West Village and say, come on, let's go, Candy Darling. And Taffy called Candy Darling so often that it finally stuck. According to Candy's friend, Jeremiah Newton, she adopted the first name of Candy because of her love for sweets. Candy, Jackie, and Holly were practically inseparable. The three of them survived seemingly on pure glamour alone, couch surfing and only really eating food and drink they got from parties. According to one account, Candy met Andy Warhol in 1967 on the street in Greenwich Village as he was heading to Leatherman to buy some leather pants. Struck by her beauty, Andy stopped to talk to her and Jackie Curtis. Jackie invited Andy to her play, Glamour, Glory, and Gold, as we discussed in our last episode. By the following year, Candy Darling would make her film debut in a short scene in Andy Warhol's Flesh, directed by Paul Morrissey. The film, shot for only 
$1,500 gave Candy her first taste of underground fame. Here's a short clip of Candy in Flesh. Now look at my hair. I like it. It's terrible. I like it. Do you believe this hair comb costs $10? $10. But you can do it yourself. Andre did it. Andre of Paris on Fifth Avenue. Why don't you do it yourself? It's so easy. I'll kill that Queen Andre. You just don't comb it. Well, I don't like a set look. You know? I don't like anything that looks too set. I like things a little... We want. And things that move. I think things that move are beautiful. Yeah. Like your, your bust. It moves. Because <laughs> you don't wear a bra. Do you have a bra? Yeah. It still moves. Candy was different from the other queens. Jackie, the great playwright, had made her impression by dressing a mess at every occasion. And Holly was, at the time, a manic speed queen with impeccable, if sometimes unintentional, comic timing. But what distinguished Candy from the other queens and made her a particular fixation for Warhol was not only her unclockable 1930s looks, but her Marilyn Monroe-like desire to be taken seriously as an actress. And also her breathy voice, learned from watching hours and hours of Kim Novak films like Picnic, Vertigo, and my personal favorite, Bell, Book, and Candle, which, if you ask me, makes a really good allegory for gay life in the 1950s. It's unclear if Candy made money during this time as a sex worker. Some of her friends have claimed or strongly implied as such. However, others, such as her sometimes roommate, Jeremiah Newton, have strongly rejected these claims, portraying Candy as almost virginal in her approach to relationships. From the accounts I've seen, it seems obvious that at a minimum, she had a variety of gentlemen callers who took her out for fancy dinners several times a week, particularly at the height of her fame. Leveraging her minor stardom from flesh, Candy Darling set out to break into Hollywood. She set her sights on the film adaptation of Gore Vidal's controversial 1968 novel, Myra Breckenridge. Myra Breckenridge is essentially Vidal's hot take on feminism and the sexual revolution. It centers around the titular character, a flamboyant transsexual bent on getting revenge against men. While a lot of trans women older than me have taken issue with both the book and the film, I personally adore Myra Breckenridge and aspire to her general attitude. I mean, like, the first line of the book is, I am Myra Breckenridge, whom no man can ever possess. How great is that? Like, come on. Anyway, when Candy found out that it was being adapted for the screen, she mounted a campaign using all of her connections to track down the producer and director of the film. She hounded them with phone calls, but ultimately, the trans role was given to cis actress Raquel Welch. Hurt and defeated, she quipped in her notoriously breathy voice, they decided Raquel Welch would make a more believable transvestite.
Capping off the 1960s, Candy attended the funeral of Judy Garland, the very same night of the Stonewall Riots. Andy Warhol, confusing June for July, related the experience in popism. At the end of July, I took Ondine and Candy up to the round the block line for Judy Garland at Frank Campbell's funeral home on 82nd and Madison. I wanted to tape record them as they were waiting to go past the casket. I had it in my head that this would make a great play. Ondine and Candy in a line stretching across the stage with criers and laughers all over the place and everybody telling each other what brought them there. But being with Ondine that day was really strange. It was like being with a normal person. He hadn't been coming around the factory much. He had a steady lover now. He said he was totally off speed and he was sort of settled down working as a mailman in Brooklyn. For weeks, I couldn't stop thinking about this new non-personality of Ondine's. Talking to him now was like talking to your Aunt Tilly. Sure, it was good he was off drugs, I supposed, and I was glad for him, I supposed, but he was so boring. There was no getting around that. The brilliance was gone. Heading into the 1970s, Candy would play small parts in a variety of films, including Some of My Best Friends Are, a 1971 film set in a gay bar starring Rue McClanahan, better known later as Blanche Devereaux on The Golden Girls, and also Fanny Flagg, author of Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe. She also appeared in Jackie Curtis's play Vain Victory. Here's a clip from her performance in Vain Victory at La Mama Experimental Theater Club alongside Augusto Mikado and Jackie Curtis. I feel real. I feel very real. Have you been taking ups again? <laughs> no one will read Marie Nemo. Let I'm real. Someone check out a purse for buying pants. No. Look what I discovered in Canada just before we sailed. I stopped into a thrift shop. I'm going to throw a tea, a fabulous tea. People will jump for these hairnets. <laughs> Not everyone is as fortunate as we are. You know something, Marie? I had a hairnet just like that. Same color and everything. Funny thing, it's missing. <laughs> That's my hand at Marine, you know it. So give it back. You don't think I would deal in secondhand hair nets, do you? Give it to me. Give it to me now. <laughs> do I look real? Do I? I saw Miss Mookie and I left her in the second reel. Well, she said I was real. I'm real. I'm real. Candy would eventually be replaced in the role by Holly Woodlawn, as I discussed in our previous two episodes. But Candy wouldn't be out of work for long. She took a turn as journalist for Andy's Interview magazine, interviewing surrealist and trans woman appreciator Salvador Dali, which went mm, about as well as one might imagine. Here's how it begins. Candy. How did you get your start in the art world? Dolly. Before one month, before new life, before born, you know? 
Darling, while you're in your mother's womb, Dolly, because my first concrete memories is intrauterine memories, darling, intra, Dolly, uterine, interouterine, you know what it is, darling, oh yes, uh uh-huh. Candy was tapped by Paul Morrissey and Andy Warhol to star in their new film, tentatively titled Pigs, Politically Involved Girls. Another possible title was Andy Warhol's Sex, an homage to the classic play by Mae West. Finally, the film was titled Women and later Women in Revolt. The film stars Candy Darling as a socialite who is seduced into joining a radical lesbian feminist group, the titular politically involved girls, while also struggling to be taken seriously as an actress, a role Candy knew all too well after her crushing disappointment with Myra Breckenridge. The film is hilarious and bizarre, the best of Morrissey's Warhol films in my opinion, The film would prove to be eerily prescient also when, just two years after its release, socialite heiress Patty Hearst would be kidnapped and indoctrinated into the Symbionese Liberation Army. Here's a clip from Women in Revolt. Well, your friends are waiting for She took the money and spent it. She spent it on gigolos from the East Village other. I mean, I'm just beside myself over it. I think it's the most disgusting thing I've ever heard of. All the time I thought she was a dyke. That's true. She may be butchy on the outside, but she sure does like men. And she doesn't mind paying for them either. Does she think he loves her? Who, that muscle man? Mm. He's nothing but a latent homosexual, if you ask me. Don't you say? I don't know. I mean, I, I just can't think straight after what she did, after taking all our money and everything. When she took advantage of you, she took advantage of me and everybody else that she knows. She's terrible. And it'll be a cold night in August by the time she gets any... And to think, I used to look up to Jackie Curtis. I know. Well, now you have to look down. How far down? Well, I don't know, but they say she's too low for the dogs to bite. Really? She should find the nearest sewer and jump in. I mean, when it's money, it really hurts. I mean, she never got to me. I never had a man in my whole life. Women in Revolt brought Candy her greatest fame. 
Andy threw an exclusive party for Candy at a Park Avenue restaurant with crowds around the block. Even Jackie Curtis couldn't get in, and she was in the film, too. But those who did included the designer Halston, George Plimpton, and actress Sylvia Miles. As WarholStars.org tells it, quote, When a security guard asked, My God, what are they giving away in there? In reference to all the partygoers, one of the guests responded, Would you believe a transvestite? The play was protested by actual feminists who claimed it was anti-women's lib. And they're right. It is, at least in its original reading... It's aged marvelously, though, and in today's political context, works as a brilliant take on anti-trans radical feminism. Candy was unimpressed with the protesters, saying, Who do these dykes think they are, anyway? Well, I just hope they all read Vincent Camby's review in today's Times. He said I look like a cross between Kim Novak and Pat Nixon. It's true. I do have Pat Nixon's nose. The film's success launched Candy to another level in her career, but Andy was growing tired of drag queens and trans women. As I discussed in our previous episodes in this miniseries, Jackie, Holly, and Candy were prone to shaking down Andy for money with bizarre stunts and threats. They were out of their minds on speed, Candy's use of speed so intense that she had ruined her teeth. Andy paid for her to get caps on them, but the caps were done poorly, and apparently they fell out with often comic timing. While Candy and Andy would stay in touch for the rest of her short life, Andy began to shut out her friends, and the two inevitably drifted. Candy moved on to other roles, opened up for her by the success of Women in Revolt. She was flown to Vienna to star in the German avant-garde film Der Tod der Maria Malibran, or The Death of Maria Malibran. It's a strange film, and though beautifully shot, it is unfortunately completely ruined by Candy appearing in blackface, singing the St. Louis blues. Jeremiah Newton, Candy's friend and sometimes roommate, relates how Jackie and Holly reacted to Candy's attempt to become a serious actress outside the drag world. Unlike Jackie and Holly, Candy always behaved in a very grand manner. In 1972, after she appeared in Werner Schroeter's film The Death of Maria Malibran, Holly and Jackie made merciless fun of her serious attitude. It just drove them crazy that Candy aspired to be a working actress and a legitimate movie star. Get real, get off your trapeze and down into the sawdust, Jackie would tell her. Back in America... Candy was cast in Tennessee Williams's newest play, Small Craft Warnings. To Candy, this must have seemed like she was about to finally get the mainstream recognition she'd been fighting for, the chance to break out of the underground. She was cast as Violet, an ostensibly cis character, at the invitation of Williams himself. But this was not the Tennessee of Streetcar Named Desire. Spent and drunk, Williams was a shadow of his former self. The play, which I read last week, isn't one of his best. It's unbalanced, overly stagey, too camp. 
Candy's character spends the entire play doing only two things, crying in the bathroom offstage and giving hand jobs to the men. Still, Candy did her best with the material. Tennessee adored Candy, which is good because the rest of the cast wanted nothing to do with either of them. The cis cast members wouldn't let Candy into either the women's dressing room or the men's. She was forced to use a small closet instead. Tennessee, who played the role of Doc, also wasn't welcome among the other actors due to his perpetual drunkenness, and so he spent all of his time with Candy in the closet gossiping about everyone else. He writes fondly of this time with her. Here's a clip of an irredeemably drunk Tennessee Williams at the press conference for Small Craft Warnings, flanked by Candy and another actress. As poet Stephen Ira put it to me, you can almost see Candy thinking with a sigh, this is Andy all over again. In 1972, after years of writing nothing but flops, Tennessee Williams was ready to try again at the age of 61. His newest play, Small Craft Warnings, was staged at a tiny theater in downtown Manhattan. But this play the publicity campaign included a press conference that was painful to watch because of Williams' obvious drunkenness. Because, darling, you have worked so, I won't say goddamn, unless you let me. Is it all right? <laughs> you worked so goddamn hard, love. It's beautiful. Thank you. I don't think you know how much I love actors. They're my life. They're the blood that keeps me alive. Actors like you and like Candy. While the play didn't get particularly good reviews, it was a major step towards the mainstream, if perhaps not the breakthrough Candy had hoped. From here, she was cast in a lead role in an off-Broadway revival of Tom Ein's The White Whore and the Bit Player a play about Marilyn Monroe. Candy played the character based on Marilyn, referred to only as the whore, to great reviews. However, the reviewers weren't able to move past the fact that she was trans. One reviewer wrote, quote, With her teased platinum hair and practice pouts, Miss Darling looks like her character and resolutely keeps her acting little girl lost. The role-playing aspect works to her advantage. She could, after all, be a male lunatic pretending to be the white whore. Tom Ian would go on to great success writing the book and lyrics for Dream Girls, including the smash hit song And I'm Telling You I'm Not Going, which made the career of Jennifer Holliday in the 80s. In September of that year, 1973, in September of that year, 1973, Candy was admitted to Columbus Mother Cabrini Hospital for tests. It was the same hospital Andy had been taken to after he was shot by Valerie Solanas several years earlier. She was diagnosed with lymphoma. At first, Candy tried to keep her diagnosis secret, telling very few people that she was in hospital. She didn't even tell her longtime friends, Jackie Curtis and Holly Woodlawn. Bob Colasello tells the story of how Andy reacted to learning of Candy's illness in the 1990 book, Holy Terror, Andy Warhol Close. Quote, 
On Tuesday, October 2nd, 1973, I called Candy from the factory and asked her if she wanted anything. She eked out the sentences in short gasps. Yes, more juice, the sweet kind. I crave sweets. I went to the hospital, bearing more gifts from Andy, expensive notepaper, expensive chocolates. She was spitting up phlegm when I arrived. I noticed how white she was, ghostly. Candy called for a nurse, and as soon as she arrived, I left. Candy said, tell Andy to call me, and no more presents. I don't need presents. It was the first time she didn't put up a good front. The next morning, I called Andy and told him how badly Candy was doing and that she wanted him to call her. Oh, Bob, I can't. I just can't. What's wrong with Candy anyway? I mean, do you really think she has cancer or something? I said that her doctor wouldn't tell me anything. I know about doctors, let me tell you, said Andy. And then he found an excuse to get off the phone. It wasn't that he didn't care, he just couldn't cope. I called Maxime, who, with the Jacksons, had been paying for bills not covered by Medicare. Maxime suggested calling Dr. William Kahan, her cancer specialist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Hospital, and the husband of Vogue editor Grace Mirabella. I called from the factory as Andy hovered over me. Dr. Kahan said that he would look into Candy's case to see if anything could be done. Andy hovered over me through the call to Candy's mother, too. Teresa Slattery appreciated what we were trying to do, but she didn't think there was much hope. Candy didn't know it, but the doctors had told her that Candy had leukemia and a malignant tumor in her stomach. I hung up the phone and told Andy. For the first and only time in the 17 years I knew him, I saw him cry. That November, Candy attended a show by Holly at a nightclub called Trude Heller's. She found Holly after the show and told Holly what a good job she did. Used to only getting catty feedback from Candy, Holly was immediately suspicious of Candy's newfound sweetness. Holly found out the next day that Candy had cancer and had snuck out of the hospital against doctors' orders just to see her friend's show. Some of her friends, including Lou Reed, would later attribute her lymphoma to the use of black market hormones, though this is likely not the case. Candy left a final note to her friends before she died on March 21st, 1974. It reads like the Oscar acceptance speech she was never able to make in life. To whom it may concern, by the time you read this, I will be gone. Unfortunately, before my death, I had no desire left for life. Even with all my friends and my career on the upswing, I felt too empty to go on in this unreal existence. I am just so bored by everything. You might say bored to death. It may sound ridiculous, but it's true. I've arranged my own funeral arrangements with a guest list, and it is paid for. I would like to say goodbye to Jackie Curtis. I think you're fabulous. Holly, Sam Green, a true friend and noble person. Ron Link, I'll never forget you. Andy Warhol, what can I say? Paul Morrissey, Lenny, you know I loved you. Andy, you too. Jeremiah, don't take it too badly. Just remember what a bitch I was. Geraldine, I guess you saw it coming. Richard Turley and Richard Golub, I know I could have been a star. 
but I decided I didn't want it. Manuel, I'm better off now. Terry, I love you. Susan, I am sorry. Did you know I couldn't last? I always knew it. I wish I could meet you all again. Goodbye for now. Love always. Candy darling. Tinkerbell, hi. The note was read aloud at her funeral, which coincidentally took place at the very same funeral home who did Judy Garland's, which Candy had attended years earlier with Andy and Ondine. When the line about Jackie was read, Jackie reportedly burst into tears. Years later, Holly would still tear up in fond remembrance of Candy and Jackie while filming her interview for Superstar in a House Dress. Andy paid for the funeral, but didn't attend. Actress Julie Newmar, best remembered as the original Catwoman on the live-action Batman TV series, read the eulogy, and legendary silent film star and Sunset Boulevard actress Gloria Swanson saluted Candy's coffin, the pair giving Candy a sort of posthumous Hollywood acceptance Candy had craved for so long. Candy's mother later remarried and reportedly kept Candy's life a secret from her new husband. You can see how this plays out very tragically in the film Beautiful Darling. I've come to pay my body and all it requires in this world. Candy lives on, not only in the famous Walk on the Wild Side song, but also in Lou Reed's other song, Candy Says, which you can hear in the background right now, and on the cover of the Smiths' 1987 single, Sheila Takes a Bow, the cover of Anthony and the Johnsons' album, I Am a Bird Now, on screen, played by both Willem Belly and Stephen Dorff, in the Rolling Stones' 1967 song, Citadel, and in the work of numerous trans and queer artists, most notably Greer Langton and Zachary Drucker. Her acting, particularly in Women in Revolt, has grown in acclaim since her death, and she was the subject of the 2010 documentary, Beautiful Darling. Though her life was tragically cut short at the peak of her career, she remains an icon of 70s glamour. If I could walk away from me Candy says And I hate those quiet places That cool Thanks for listening to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults is written, recorded, and produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is recorded in Montreal, Quebec, on the traditional territories of the Algonquin and Haudenosaunee. Check out the show notes for all the sources I used. 
Again, I'm particularly indebted to Craig B. Heiberger's book and film, Superstar in a House Dress, and Gary Comenis's excellent and thorough WarholStars.org website. If you like the show, please subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Google Play. And if you'd like to contribute to the making of future episodes, please consider donating to my Patreon at patreon.com slash OFTV. You can also tweet at me at Morgan M. Page on Twitter. Join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. Good night. Older, what do you think I'd see? If I could walk away from